Welcome to the Talking Serverless Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Jones, and I am joined by Fernando Medina Cori. Fernando is a serverless solutions architect at Serverless Inc. How are you doing today, Fernando? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I was really excited to hear that you've been recently giving uh, some training stuff uh, for AWS around serverless. How has that been? It's been really great. I uh, gave one talk on making a serverless development portfolio at LibertyJS in Philadelphia recently. And then right after that, I flew back home and then went to Portland and gave a talk on creating a first AWS serverless app and uh, managed to, to get everybody spinning up a serverless application. That's awesome. Yeah, that sounds like you've been traveling quite a bit then. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a bit around. It's good to be back home and uh, not be traveling too much anymore. Nice. And so when it comes to, you know, working at Serverless Inc. as a solutions architect, what, what type of things are you mostly traveling like that and doing trainings or what does that look like? Yeah, so there's a, a small amount of my work is definitely that. Uh, it feels like a lot when I'm traveling, but for the rest of the work that I'm doing, I'm uh, talking with people about how to use the serverless framework. I'm writing blog posts on new features and explaining how to use the sorts of things that we're building and uh, just a really big mishmash of all of that on top of talking with clients and helping them figure out all the new things that we're doing. Okay, that's awesome. Yeah, so it sounds like you're a mix of doing both like uh, the training side and also like a little bit of like development, consulting. Yep, I'd say that's a pretty good summary of all of that. Nice. And so when you, how did this start? Like how how did you go from uh, your background to working at Serverless Inc.? So, yeah, so back in uh, 2015, 2016, I'd just taken a job as a support engineer in Philadelphia. Um, and I was uh, just supporting a product that was based in AWS and had a lot of uh, chances to, to dig into AWS and learn about it there. Um, and eventually I moved into this data engineering role and had a bunch of data pipelines I had to, to start automating and sending data from one place to another and eventually trying to get into a data warehouse. And so I had to figure out how to do that. And there was this fun little product called Lambda that AWS had released. And because the developers at my company and the the DevOps people there wouldn't give me permissions to touch EC2 instances, which most of the software ran on, (laughs) I uh, said, fine, just let me use Lambda. And um, you won't get much of a bill because, look, it's pretty cheap to run these invocations, um, so you don't have to worry about it. And so they eventually gave me enough permissions to do all my production-level work on those. um, And that's how I started using it. Um, I stumbled across the serverless framework after a while of trying to use bash scripts to manage all my uh, deployments and uh, I've never looked back. Yeah. So yeah, that sounds like it's a, it seems like a pretty good story into it based on just the, cause I worked at a bigger company as well. And when, when I was there, it was kind of this isolation around like creating EC2 instances or working within them. But yeah, I can see how the idea of like Lambda being like isolated and just like this small, uh, separate unit. Was it surprising to people that worked there and like the tech ops teams, um, the usage of Lambda? Were they familiar with it at all when you started using it? Yeah, I don't think anybody there had used it before until I started using it, which was an interesting dynamic because there was kind of a bit of um, you know bravado around working with EC2 and having all your you know your network configurations and all the uh, builds that you have to do and highly guarding your you know your your chef cookbooks and your Jenkins instance to deploy things and uh, just you know all of that whole process that when you start to work with Lambda you're just like eh, I don't have to deal with any of this and I can still do 
a bunch of cool stuff that I need to do for production. Um, so it was it was a really fun uh, fun dichotomy there. And once I started using it, some of the people uh, who I was good friends with there, who were mentors there, um, started getting pretty excited about it too, and using it in some of their um, kind of DevOps tools and and some of their scripts there to to start doing some really cool stuff. Very cool. And so after after you kind of got into this, um, how long were you actually working with Lambda before you started moving into more like the course development training side of serverless? Yeah, so I think I I just cleaned out some old old Lambda functions for my my personal account, and I saw one that was from 2016 that was uh, testing something because I hadn't yet gotten permissions in my company's AWS account. Um, so I started with it around then. Um, and uh, I guess been been using it since then in more and more cases that I needed it. And so, uh, you know, noticing your background, uh, you know, being an author, uh, creating courses for Linux Academy, how did you kind of make that that jump over to start releasing stuff out to the community? Yeah, so back when I was back when I was at Curlate, I was um, that's the job that I was uh, working as a data engineer for, and started to use Lambda at. I realized that this technology was uh, what I thought was going to be very useful for a lot of developers in the future from my perspective of coming into it and going, this is really easy. This eliminates all the complexity that the teams that I'm currently working on have to deal with. Um, So I thought, you know what? I know how to use this now and not that many people do. So I applied to actually make courses for a company called Pluralsight.com where I'm still an author. I have a bunch of courses up there. Um, And I published an introduction to AWS Lambda course that... um, uh, gave everybody uh, a complete introduction to what serverless was, what this new AWS Lambda service was. This course was probably published within, you know, uh, the early days of Lambda before it was really, you know, all hyped up as much as AWS really likes to hype it up right now and um, uh, kind of justifiably. Um, so from there, I made a few courses uh, while I was working as a data engineer and uh, eventually Linux Academy saw some of those courses and wanted to hire me full-time to make content for them. Um, so I started doing certification courses, training on uh, kind of getting your certified developer associate certification for Linux Academy, uh, the big data certifications, because I already had some data engineering experience, um, doing a lot of stuff like that for them and also serverless courses. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's pretty interesting to hear that. Um, so you started with Pluralsight 2016, started creating some content around it really early Lambda days. Linux Academy saw that and then they, they picked you up and then uh, when you actually started doing Linux Academy, you mentioned certifications. Did you end up rolling out uh, any courses around where they finished and like completely rolled out right now? Yeah, so Linux Academy, I think, still has at least one or two... Two, two kind of bigger courses that I made the, the bulk of the, the, the content for. One was the Certified Developer Associate course um, that I made all the kind of lessons. And uh, there, there were a few contributions from some other team members who did really good work. Um, but a lot of the lessons, a lot of the labs are, are mine and the Certified Developer Associate. There's also the big data certification um, that I made the, the majority of the content for in that one as well. And I contributed a little bit to someone else's course for the Certified Developer or Certified Solutions Architect Associate exam. So a few of those certs... Um, or just those exams are so broad that you have to really get a, a, a broad understanding of a lot of AWS services, but they're a fun place to start if you're just, you know, digging into to learning more stuff about the cloud. Yeah, I, I've, I've found that to be definitely the case, but the, the level of knowledge required 
to create a course around it seems like that that probably took a fair amount of research is that <laughs> It did. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah. um, yeah. I mean, if you, if you, if you talk about the time, uh, you know, it, making any of those courses, I'd say I've read through probably more pages of documentation and in those roles than I've, um, that I've had to anywhere else, just because to make those, I have to, you know, constantly go back and double check myself and make sure I'm not misstating something about some API or some service or some limitation, um, which means I read through, or I read through, you know, hundreds of pages of those AWS docs, just to make sure for each of the services that I'm touching on, that I'm still being accurate aws hasn't changed anything and there's no better way to do something than i'm talking about and so how did this like um from my perspective hearing this how did that change like your mental perspective when it came from reading hundreds of pages of documentation building courses around like deep diving into specific aws services and then now moving into this like new frontier serverless yeah how is that yeah yeah well i mean i think you know, I, it made me really internalize how valuable of a skill being able to read through documentation and test it, what it's saying, and try out uh, the things that it's that, that it's telling you. Um, because having the confidence to just dive into documentation for something technical is one of the, I think, most valuable skills you can have as a developer. Uh, because it means that whatever you need to do, there's hopefully some documentation for. If there's not, oh, I feel so sorry for you, but hopefully there is somewhere. Um, and if that documentation is at all decent, then you can teach yourself how to do these really awesome things. Um, so that's that really reinforced my idea of, of that as a really important skill. Um, and it made me realize for a lot of the services that I was looking at, how much better, in my opinion, the serverless style of development is compared to all of the overhead you have to do with more traditional uh, server-based uh, development. Yeah, so to switch directions completely, um, uh, when it comes to like serverless and looking at how things have changed since you first started, mm-hmm. what has what have you seen in the adoption uh, rate, and what have you seen kind of come out of the serverless community that's helped it bring you know general adoption forward? Yeah. So when I started working with Lambda back in 2016, I was writing you know I was writing Bash scripts to deploy my Lambda functions. So uh, if I uh, at the time I was writing Python functions, so I had to write a Bash script to bundle up my dependencies to do like a pip install for the requirements file into a specific folder that I would then zip and upload into um, into AWS with the AWS CLI all inside of my Bash script. Um, now that it wasn't horrible, but it you know it's really kind of a manual job of configuring that for every uh, deployment that you had. So the improvements that I saw were as soon as I saw the serverless framework. I mean, I, I've been using the serverless framework long before working there, so you know this will sound like a plug, but it's it's true. Um, I love the fact that I just wrote you know, 10 lines of configuration for my functions and boom, I was done with what I otherwise would have had to write, you know, a lot more lines of code just to get everything out. Um, So I think the tooling's come a long way, both from the serverless framework, but also from lots of other um, components of, of what, are included when you're building a serverless application. Like right now, if you want to build something out with authentication and authorization, boom, there's a third-party service for you or an AWS service for you. If you want to use Cognito or something like Auth0, if you want to add search to your application, you can do something like Algolia and implement that in your front end really quickly. If you want to deploy a front end, there's tools to really quickly get up like HTTPS, CloudFront distribution, um, everything set up in an S3 static website with SSL pretty quickly in a custom domain. Um, there were some challenges, I think, earlier on in 
some of the the database technologies they're using. Uh, I think as people adopt the mindset of using DynamoDB for even more complex workloads and really start getting better at things like single table design that um, and index overloading and stuff like that, that it'll be it'll be a really powerful tool for uh, the majority of applications. But um, moving from the kind of relational database world uh, when I was a data engineer was, was a bit of a challenge to, to try and move into that, that new world. Um, but I think things are getting better there and there's a lot of improvements to even working with resources that are in VPC that um, as far as Lambda goes, you, you might still need to do some backwards compatibility with existing services, existing applications that still have those sorts of uh, requirements. Mm. Yeah, no, I think that you touched on a lot of really interesting things. I think the the tool development has been rapidly increasing and um, and it feels like, you know, the work that you're doing with like doing uh, workshops and training and things like that is also going to help like move the knowledge needle forward so that people can actually use these services and, you know, do things like you mentioned, like DynamoDB, like over indexing or something and like how all this stuff underneath the hood, you know, because on the surface, you're putting data into something, but actually there's a lot of other like optimizations uh, and side effects. Um, and so, you know, with that, uh, I guess I would ask the follow-up question of like, what have you seen as like the biggest problems that people are facing in serverless? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think frequently, frequently, I think I see two sorts of problems. The first one that people come to is like, what's the right way to do it? Right. So trying to figure out out of all the options for tools for building something, what's, what's the like quote unquote right way to do it. Um, and that can differ depending on who you're working with, the projects that they're using, the skills that they already have, and the limitations and uh, expectations that they're going to have for the growth of their own applications. Um, so that's just kind of a mindset of you know having an uh, having a an understanding of if there is a right way and being able to take those uh, considerations into effect. Um, I think that the the problems that they have with that are usually trying to move from a relational style world to a NoSQL world if they're going to DynamoDB and doing that effectively. Um, I think that's one of the biggest mental hurdles is figuring out how you do that in an effective way. And then also figuring out the other tools that there are to support using something like DynamoDB if you need non uh, kind of non-predictable query patterns. So can you stream all your DynamoDB data, data into something like Elasticsearch or Algolia to be able to look through it later in a less um, structured way? Um, another big challenge that I think I've seen uh, outside of that kind of transition is how to do everything you want to do without using a million and one different tools. So, you know, you have uh, a, what is somewhat of a still of like a fractured ecosystem of coming from the server-based world. You have a million and one tools you have to use to deploy things to the servers, to monitor the servers, to go and, you know, debug application code, to run things locally and demo everything there. Um, and I think it's a similar, it was, you know, it is a kind of a similar problem in the serverless landscape where you have a bunch of different tools for your development process and how do you figure out which ones are going to work best for you? Um, this is kind of more of the bias play from my perspective again too, but uh, I like what we're doing here at Serverless Inc. to make sure that there is more of a full life cycle for developing your applications, for testing your applications, deploying them, monitoring them uh, when they're deployed. And I, I like that sort of model, but there's there's a bunch of great tools out there to use for developing your applications as well that you know we're never going to touch. We're probably never going to do anything with authentication or something, and I'm always going to use Auth0 because you know, we use it as a company already. So there's great things like that. 
Yeah. So one thing that like struck me there is just like analysis paralysis, right? Where it's like you're faced with so many different tools, they do different things, the vocabulary that people use to describe, you know, very simple things like tracing, for instance, could be phrased slightly differently. Um, And so kind of what you're getting at is like, uh, you know, having like an all-in-one tool, uh, you mentioned the serverless framework, um, Pro, uh, I think it is. Um, And so what I would say is, what is your opinion on like the, because when you think about like serverless and it's kind of like language agnostic, um, it doesn't matter what type of thing you're running, you know, like Lambda opened up their runtime, mm-hmm. so now you can run all these different runtimes, and these people are bringing all this different context to like one central place. Um, do you feel like that's why there's kind of a gap and like these mental barriers built up where people have to kind of like relearn how to do things um, because the model is based on potentially like Node.js or something and it's being applied to different languages? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think in a lot of senses, every time AWS adds something new to Lambda, there's always like, a, you know, frantic figuring out of how does this impact us? Do we need to add this in? Is this going to save us money? Is this going to, you know, cause any issues for things down the road? Or should we be planning differently? Um, I think those are great questions to think about when you see any new features, because it's totally possible they could be good for you. Um, I don't think necessarily that... Um, that sort of change causes a, a ton of issues usually. Um, I think it's more that it, it there's a lot of opportunities that people really want to jump on. What might cause issues is jumping into things too fast without recognizing whether or not they'll be a good fit. Um, uh, but for the, I think the majority of companies, it doesn't, it doesn't cause issues. You know, for us, it might, because we have to keep up with the, the fast pace of new releases on, you know, a huge number of different cloud providers. But uh, those aren't really issues, I guess, either. It's just something that gives us more work to do to, to keep on innovating. Yeah, very interesting. I think that the idea there uh, was like, you know, researching. I think someone on Twitter, I can't remember exactly who it was, but they said, you know, research for two weeks when it comes to serverless instead of developing for two weeks and then researching for two days or something. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's I think that's a that's a fair analysis too, right? You know, you got to plan it out beforehand. And I think that's especially the case when you're working with DynamoDB because that's a tool that demands that you know your access patterns before you start using it. Um, otherwise, you're just risking trying to go the relational model on a, a NoSQL database, and it's gonna it's gonna bite you in the end. Mm. And I feel like that's something that's not talked about too much because um, when people think about NoSQL, they're thinking about just throwing in unstructured data into something and worrying about it after the fact. But you're saying understand access patterns first. I mean, you can throw it in there. I mean, it's great if you want to do like a prototype and you just need to put the values somewhere and bring them back and you don't need a ton of uh, a ton more functionality than that. But if you're planning to do... Uh, a lot of work on uh, what would have been like a multiple entity style relational model, you're going to need to plan out how that single table could support uh, multiple access patterns. Um, Because probably in the long run, what you don't want to do is end up spinning 12 different tables and having to query each of them independently and redundantly to get the data out that you want. That's like trying to do uh, SQL style and joins on a NoSQL tool, which isn't great. Um, and there's a lot of information on this. I'd suggest um, a few things. There's a Trek 10 post uh, that discusses the Northwind database and modeling that relational database in a DynamoDB environment. And there's also a great talk from reInvent on uh, just a DynamoDB deep dive that towards the end does some really, really impressive things with uh, those sorts of query patterns and modeling them with DynamoDB. Gotcha. 
And so to get to this, uh, when you're when you're switching from, you know, if I was a company and I'm moving to serverless and I'm running relational databases, are you recommending to people to uh, kind of use DynamoDB as like the that's like the go to database for making this migration over? Um, yeah, good question. So if you're if you're a provider that already uses MySQL, you already have a MySQL instance running in your legacy application, and you have all your data there, it's powering everything. Um, do you want to necessarily migrate over to DynamoDB? Uh, if you don't have any issues with the MySQL stuff that you're running right now, uh, in my opinion, like maybe not. All right, um, there are ways that you could, you know, you could start to build stuff to still access that MySQL table or the MySQL databases and the tables in that um, with serverless uh, with serverless style development. Um, but if you're doing something from scratch, I think by default, my my gut instinct for most applications, I think, is to use DynamoDB as some uh, some component of the the kind of API back to data layer, the the backing data layer for any APIs, uh, because it's really easy to integrate with Lambda. You're just making uh, SDK calls to the service, and it's returning things to you or putting things on the table, um, and it makes it really easy to avoid um, potential issues with things like uh, the connection pools that you have to manage when it comes to MySQL tools, uh, dealing with all the VPC configuration, the inbound and outbound traffic rules for uh, blocking traffic in and out depending on uh, you know the protocols or the ports that it's coming in on. Um, so a lot of overhead that you don't have to do when you're dealing with DynamoDB that you might have to do if you're dealing with something like RDS that's in RDS or in a VPC. Yeah, no, that's great that you point that out. It's like when you when you think about uh, RDS or you think about DynamoDB, um, and you're you're talking about relational or NoSQL. Uh, the really interesting thing about that you mentioned was you know you don't have to worry about connection pulling inside of the Lambda function or you know automating like VPC creation for potentially like multiple stages or however that's going to work out. Um, and you don't have to do bastion hosts or SSH tunnels. Yep. <laughs> yeah. um, and there's so much like, that's all it's stuff overhead. that's like required. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's absolutely required. Because if you don't, then you end up looking like a, you know, a fool uh, walking around with like your head in a pumpkin or something when somebody gets access <laughs> to your, you know, your unsecured Elasticsearch instance. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, I'm sure that's not a good feeling for the people who've had to deal with that. Yeah, no, it's like, uh, so at least on the surface, it can look like I'm just going to put my stuff in the thing that I know, which is like, you know, MySQL. But then as you actually peel that back a little bit, you realize like, oh, wow, you're not actually doing a database anymore. You're kind of doing all the infrastructure. And, exactly. Yep, yeah. exactly. And, you know, that's great for people who have that experience and are familiar with that and confident going into that, that they're doing the right procedures there. But I'm never going to recommend that to someone who's just, you know, starting out building their application and they're building it on kind of a serverless architecture. Um, if they don't have that MySQL experience already, I think, you know, if you don't have those kind of like mental hurdles that I had when I was moving from writing thousands and thousands of lines of SQL as a data engineer to going to DynamoDB and trying to figure out how you're modeling these data models in a DynamoDB in a single DynamoDB table for for you know single services, then just start with DynamoDB and it'll become easier. I think um, I'm not trying to say it, it works for everything. There's definitely cases where it's a horrible tool, uh, and that's why I also mentioned different like search uh, search tools that you can use to be a lot more flexible. Um, but it, for the most part, I, I see that as a really, really useful tool when you're building these applications out. And so, so with this, like you mentioned on one, one small thing was kind of like barrier of entry. Mm-hmm. So 
as the barrier of entry appears to be on the surface getting you know less and less um, with things like DynamoDB, um, how do you see the future of serverless developing? And yeah. do you see that barrier of entry dramatically lowering even further than it currently is? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think that's one of the biggest benefits of serverless style development in general. I mean, that's why I got... That's why I was able to get into it at first, right? Like I was too cheap when I was starting in my career and also, you know, struggling to pay rent in Philadelphia on a, you know, an entry level, entry level job to uh, be able to think about spinning up like complicated EC2 instance setups with multiple instances inside of VPC and being worried about what I'd end up having to pay for that at the end of the month, right? Um, All those features really lend themselves well to companies that have enough of a budget to deal with. But as a single developer just trying to learn AWS, my best bet is to do things in a serverless application, serverless architecture, because I have the free tier. I have, you know, a million invocations that I can run each month without having to pay for them. I've got a pretty decent, substantial amount of capacity with uh, DynamoDB. Same thing with API Gateway and the number of free requests I can run in the free tier. Um, So that whole, like, kind of just cost level is already dropping a barrier of entry. Now, when it comes to skills and development, I think it's definitely going to go that way um, in the future. I think a lot of people are trying to make it even easier to do um, uh, development on different cloud platforms and building still scalable, robust applications with all these technologies. So I definitely see that um, from a lot of different, uh, different angles, not just the angle that we're doing, but plenty of other people trying to do similar things too. Yeah, no, that's really insightful. Um, and you mentioned uh, a, a couple uh, things back. You mentioned Philadelphia mm-hmm. again. And I remember that you are actually the host of Serverless Philadelphia. Is that correct? Uh, I was, yeah. So when I was there, when I lived there 2016 to 20 or 2015 to 2017, I can't remember the exact years, but I uh, was hosting or organizing the Serverless Philadelphia meetup for a while. Um, Pam Sell and Erica Windish, the, Erica's the, the founder of IOPipes, uh, IOPipe, and uh, Pam used to work at IOPipe as well, but I think she's at um, HashiCorp now um but both of them were were organizing that as well and i uh kind of snuck in the bandwagon because i got my company to to host the events at their location and i uh, kind of started helping organize and um yeah it was a it was great great fun to be had a great way to to connect with people in the community who are interested in the technology it was another reason i was like hmm, i think this is going places people come to this meetup they're interested they have a lot of good use cases i really should make a course on this hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's really uh, like it's good that here like all the things that you're doing to like give back to the community and like kind of influence the serverless adoption and like getting people in the know about how they should do things. And I guess like what I would ask is like as we're starting to wrap up this, um, you know, how can people get in touch with you? What are the different things that you want to promote? And yeah, what would you like to share? Yeah, great question. Um, so if they want to get in touch with me, they can check out my website. Uh, it's fernandomc.com. That's M as in mango and then C as in cherry uh, com. And there's a contact form on the website. They can hit me up on uh, Twitter or LinkedIn. I also have uh, an email uh, to get to get into contact with me there. Um, in terms of promoting things, uh, I mean, Serverless Inc. is building out a bunch of different tools to uh, get the entire life cycle of your development process to your deployment process to your monitoring to your CSCD, basically everything that you need with your applications um, to try and build out that full life cycle. So people should definitely just check it out. They can sign up for a free account at dashboard.serverless.com and just see how to integrate all of those great tools with their serverless framework applications right now. Yeah. 
Wow. Well, yeah. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, I would definitely recommend any listeners to hit Fernando up and ask him all of your serverless deep dive architecture questions. Um, and uh, yeah, thanks for listening and we will see you next time. Thanks, Fernando. Thanks for having me, Ryan.